Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Brian Roth. Dr. Roth is a distinguished professor of pharmacology at the University of North Carolina, as well as a member of the National Academy of Medicine and the National Academy of Sciences. His lab studies drugs and the brain. They study how drugs work in the brain. They study how new drugs can be developed to help treat psychiatric illness. And a lot of their work is focused on psychedelics, how psychedelics work in the brain, creating and engineering novel psychedelics with new properties that make them therapeutically useful. And he's one of the leading experts on psychedelic drug action in the world. He's been studying psychedelics since the 1980s, longer than I think just about anyone on the planet. And so I actually talked with him on an early episode of the podcast, and I'm having having him back on a couple of years since that episode to talk about some of the latest research in psychedelic science. So we did a little bit of overview of some of the basics. We talked about serotonin 2A receptors and the evidence for why they are largely responsible for the psychedelic effects of psychedelics. We talked about neuroplasticity, um, how the 5-HD2A receptor may or may not be involved in the neuroplastic effects of psychedelics. We talked about other receptors that very psychedelics interact with. We talked about the Trek B receptor, which binds to an endogenous compound called BDNF, which is an important growth factor in brain development that has to do with neuroplasticity. We talked about various different psychedelics and psychoactive drugs, uh, things like classic psychedelics, so psilocin, DMT, LSD, things like ibogaine, things like ketamine and MDMA. We talked about the differences in terms of the mechanisms by which they work. And we talked about why some of these drugs can have similar effects, even though they work very differently. So for example, why do psilocybin and ketamine both have rapid antidepressant effects, even though they work in different ways? We talked about various recent results to do with neuroplasticity and psychedelics, and a lot of the details just involved in that stuff and and what some of the latest research has said. So if you're interested in psychedelic science, how psychedelics and related psychoactives work in the brain, some of the molecular details around that, and some of the latest findings and what Brian's take is on those, this will be a great episode for you. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing, please like, share, and subscribe. Uh, Don't forget to check out my substack, mindandmatter.substack.com. You can sign up for my free weekly newsletter or become a paid supporter to help the podcast grow and sustain itself. And as always, I appreciate you for tuning in. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix Mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D 
is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen and it's a handheld pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters to get $50 off your Lumen device today. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Brian Roth. Yeah, I'm a professor of pharmacology at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill um, School of Medicine. And my lab studies uh, sort of CNS uh, medications and technologies for uh, discovering new medications for serious mental illnesses. I'm also a psychiatrist by training, and I spent many years uh treating uh, treatment-resistant schizophrenia. And, um, you know, one one major component of what your lab does is, is study psychedelics and how they work in the brain and and things related to that. So uh, how, how long have you been studying psychedelics in your lab slash how long have you been studying this yourself as a scientist? Since 1983. So I, um, after I finished my PhD, in St. Louis, I did a postdoc at the National Institute of Mental Health um, in the late Herminio Costa's lab. And that's where I began my studies on uh, 5-HT2A receptors and psychedelic drugs. And so, you know, so many a people... Long, a long time. Yeah, basically. longer than most. Too long. <laughs> well, I don't know about too long. Um, so serotonin 2A receptors... You know, these are the so-called psychedelic receptors, as they're often referred to. These are the ones that many, probably most listeners of this podcast will have some level of familiarity with. But can you give everyone just a very, very basic, short overview of, of what these receptors are and why they're famous in the context of psychedelics and, and psychedelic drug action? Yeah, they're, they're uh, particularly important for psychedelic drugs because... Um, I would say there's overwhelming evidence uh, in both uh, preclinical models as well as in humans 
that the psychedelic actions of classical psychedelics, so these are drugs like psilocybin, um, mescaline, DMT, LSD, and so on, all mediate their psychedelic actions by activating this receptor in the brain. Um, the best evidence for the involvement of 5-HT2A receptors in psychedelic drug action comes from studies that were done by uh, in Franz Volenweider's lab by uh, Dr. Volenweider and Dr. Preller over the years. And what they showed is that pre-administration of a 5-HT2A preferring antagonist drug, this drug Ketanserin, um, which in Europe is approved for treating hypertension, uh, but has uh, 5-HT2, pretty strong 5-HT2A blocking activity, that when humans were pre-treated with this uh, and then given, um, I would say, fairly substantial doses of either LSD or psilocybin, that the psychedelic effects were completely gone. Um, and I have heard uh, sort of anecdotal reports of, of humans who have taken uh, selective, more selective 5-HT2A antagonists M100907, uh, for example, and re basically reported the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, and in animals, uh, basically all of the, the quote unquote psychedelic effects uh, can be blocked by pretreatment with a 5-HT2A antagonist or in mice where the 5-HT2A receptor is genetically removed. Mm -hmm. So okay, I think, so. so I think it's pretty, pretty solid that the 5-HT2A receptor is responsible for the, the psychedelic actions of these drugs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you, in a human being, if you give them psychedelics, they have a psychedelic experience. If you give them a drug first that blocks 5-HT2A receptors, gets in the way of the psychedelic interacting with the receptor, that basically gets rid of all of the psychedelic effects. And if you do comparable experiments in mice, or you remove the receptor in mice using uh, genetic tools, you get the same basic result. The behavioral effects of the psychedelics that we take as proxies for the hallucinatory effects go away. Yes. And can you remind everyone, so in mammals, in the mammalian brain, how widespread are 5-HT2A receptors and where, where do we tend to see them in the brain? So they're, they're uh, most highly uh, concentrated in the cortex uh, both in in mice and in humans, um, which I, I would say makes sense uh, because psychedelics alter how people perceive reality. And the receptors themselves are found in a particular type of cell in the cortex called pyramidal neurons. Um, and they're, they appear to be preferentially localized to layer four and layer five pyramidal neurons in the brain. And, and within those neurons, they're uh, highly localized to the cell bodies and what are called the apical dendrites. And uh, when psychedelics activate those receptors, they cause the neurons to fire in a very disorganized fashion. And uh, this disorganized uh, firing um, is thought to be responsible for the psychedelic actions because these neurons basically integrate information from multiple uh, cortical and subcortical areas 
to give us a um, the experience of reality that we experience it. And basically what psychedelic drugs do is they inject noise into these neurons, uh, therefore making it apparently uh, more difficult to uh, uh, basically classify internal experiences and external experiences differently so that uh, people, when they're under the influence of a psychedelic, they, they, they believe the experience basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is another characteristic of psychedelic drugs um, that they, they cause an experience, which for many people have a very deep meaning for them. Um, We're not, we're not at all sh- clear why why this occurs, um, but likely it's through uh, the 5-HT2A receptor. Mm-hmm. And you know, normally when we think about receptors, we think about them as being um, on the outside of the cell or in the cell membrane. You know, listening right. to things coming from the outside. Um, are they only found? Are these particular receptors are they only found in the cell membrane, or can they be found inside the cell as well? And and what what do we know about that? Well, they're always membrane bound uh, because they're they're what are called integral membrane proteins, so they can't exist floating around free in the cytoplasm of cells. But we've known for decades now that uh, receptors for psychedelics, as well as receptors for many other drugs, are found both on the cell surface as well as inside the cell, and. Um, it varies tremendously from receptor to receptor. Some some receptors, um, I think the delta opiate receptor, for instance, uh, it appears to be primarily intracellular, um, whereas other receptors appear to be primarily at the cell surface. Um, but uh, all basically all receptors in the brain and elsewhere uh, exist. Uh, in intracellular pools as well as uh, plasma membrane pools. So this is this is very common. And uh, we've also known for decades that uh, these receptors inside the cell can uh, signal. Um, so um, for historical purposes, this is something I studied in my PhD thesis. I studied opiate receptor uh, subcellular localization. And I found that uh, opiate receptors were also were found intracellularly. So this was in the early 80s, mm-hmm. basically, um, and that they were capable of signaling through uh, canonical signaling pathways. Um, so this is uh, this is a thread that has you know has been around for many many years, um, and uh, it was shown I think in the in the 80s. Um, there was work by the, the group at Janssen Pharmaceuticals that uh, did subcellular localization studies of 5-HT2A receptors in, in rat brain. And what they found was that a significant proportion of the receptors were intracellular. Um, so I think this is, and, and we, we in you know, previously published uh, studies with um, antibodies that were relatively specific for the 5-HT2A receptor. Uh, This was work done in the 90s. Um, We also showed they were intracellular. Some of them were complexed with arrestin, which is a transducer protein. Uh, And that uh, various drugs 
So drug administration could change the subcellular distribution of the receptor, both uh, in in cell culture as well as in in neurons in vivo. So it's um, I would say it's it's pretty well accepted that uh, these receptors are intracellular as well as plasma membrane bound. Mm-hmm. And so the ones that are intracellular within the cells are they uh, are there endogenous functions that have been worked out there or are they mostly just sort of sitting there waiting to be deployed to the cell membrane uh, when the appropriate conditions are triggered or can certain drugs or endogenous compounds actually get inside cells and, and activate them? Yeah, usually the the way this occurs is that the receptors are at the cell surface, a, a drug that activates them binds to them. This causes the receptors to be internalized. Hmm. And then when they're internalized, then they can continue signaling. Uh, so typically, this is the way it happens. There are there are reports of uh, of direct activation of intracellular receptors by drugs that can cross the plasma membrane. So this was um, shown for opiate receptors and beta adrenergic receptors uh, some years ago. Um, in terms of the the endogenous ligands for these receptors, so let's just talk about serotonin two A receptor and serotonin. Is serotonin mostly or always activating the receptor um, via the extracellular space outside the cell, or are there instances where it can actually get inside and and initiate signaling within the cell? Well, certainly, uh, serotonin itself will cause the receptor to be internalized, and so if it after the receptor is internalized, if the serotonin stays on the receptor, uh, then there could be continued signaling. Uh, I don't know of any data showing that this occurs, um, but it's it's certainly uh, theoretically possible. Uh, but typically, uh, serotonin is positively charged and would not cross uh, plasma membrane. So in most experiments, um, if you apply serotonin, it's only going to interact with uh, surface receptors. Mm-hmm. And one of the, right, so there's good evidence, as you said, that the 5-HE2A receptor is, is critical for the psychedelic, the psychoactive component of what psychedelics do. So there's that side of it. Um, they have these, they have these very remarkable uh, subjective effects that they induce. This receptor is very important for those. There's also the uh, the effects on neuroplasticity that psychedelics have, and that's an intense focus of study. And you know, one of the sort of major areas of focus, I, I think, for many people right now is to uh, address the question of the extent to which the the psychedelic effects, the psychoactive effects, can or cannot be dissociated from the neuroplastic effects that these drugs have. So, with that in mind, what what is the evidence that the 5-HT2A receptor? is important for for some or most of the neuroplastic effects that psychedelics are associated with? Yeah, the best evidence for that comes from uh, a series of studies that were done by several several groups now uh, showing that um, pretreatment with a 5-HT2A antagonist uh, basically blocks the effects of psychedelic drugs on uh, spine formation or um, dendritic elaboration. Um, so there are now several of those studies uh, in vitro that have shown that by different groups. 
Um, and then there are there, I would say there's mixed data in vivo. So there are um there's a recent paper that was published in Nature uh by Guy Dolan, uh suggesting that the uh plasticity inducing effects of psychedelic drugs on a measure that they call social uh social plasticity is due to 5-HT2A receptors because that was blocked with a 5-HT2A antagonist. Uh, by contrast, there is a report by Thompson, Thompson's lab, uh, a couple of years, years ago, maybe three years ago now, uh, showing that the uh, enhanced plasticity that's seen by psychedelic drugs in the hippocampus, so a different brain area, is not due to 5-HT2A receptors. Um, and I, I would just uh, make a little aside at this point that hippocampus doesn't really express 5-HT2A receptors to any extent. Mm. So it would it would not be surprising that there, if there's an effect of psychedelic drugs on hippocampal plasticity, it's not due to 5-HT2A receptors. Um, it turns out that Drugs like psilocybin and LSD uh, interact with dozens and dozens of different receptors. And so um, it's quite possible and even likely that uh, in brain areas where there aren't 5-HT2A receptors, that the main effects would be mediated by some other receptor. Um, by I would say by, con by contrast, there is one report um, that was published in Nature Neuroscience uh, earlier this year, suggesting that um, in both the cortex and the hippocampus, that the effects of psychedelic drugs on plasticity are not mediated by uh, any conventional receptor, but are mediated by direct activation of or direct uh, modulation of the track B receptor. This is a neurotrophin receptor by psychedelic drugs. So there, there is this other, um, other report that's, that would appear to be contradictory to the, to the prior reports, uh, of, of the, you know, a central role of serotonin receptors in psychedelic drug actions, both therapeutic and, and, uh, psychedelic. Mm -hmm. So, so a couple things, you know, to think about when, when we're thinking about all of these results, you know, one is, the difference between uh, in vitro studies and in vivo studies. So it sounds like people have done multiple experiments in vitro in a petri dish, basically, where they give psychedelic drugs and they see neuroplastic changes. They see new new spines forming and things like this. If you block the 5-HD2A receptor, you basically block most or all of those effects. And then experiments mm -hmm. in vivo, when they're inside of live animals, it sounds like the results are a little bit more mixed. And is that is that surprising or is that common where you see um, you don't necessarily see the in vitro studies lining up with in vivo studies? Yeah, that's that's sadly all too common. Uh, so neurons in culture, of course, are not neurons. Uh, they're if anything, they're immature neurons. So um, just to put this in perspective, uh, many many years ago. Um, I studied the developmental regulation of 5-HT2A receptors in rats. And what I found basically was the receptor really wasn't expressed until around 14 days postnatal. 
Mm. Um, and um, so if you're studying neurons uh, in culture, neurons in culture, neurons are usually harvested from days, you know, uh, embryonic day 18 mice. So mice that, that are, that have not been born. So the neurons are very immature. And um, what we have found in preliminary studies is that um, if you quantify the amount of 5-HT2A receptor in cultured neurons, there really isn't any, any receptor until day 14. Um, and so uh, in these various uh, in vitro studies, um, it's, it'll be very important going forward to actually make sure that people are studying neurons that actually express the receptors. Um, so that's one sort of complicating factor. Um, the other thing is that um, there are, I would say the, the field of in vitro neuroscience is filled with studies where um, they see something in, in neurons in vitro that they don't see in vivo. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically this is, because of developmental considerations or things like that. Um, so it would be fairly common, mm-hmm. not, not unsurprising. Yeah. And so I, I guess, I guess the basic point for people is when people are doing in vitro experiments, um, those are very easy to do and they can be much more uh, precisely controlled in the lab in many ways compared to trying to do something in the brain of a, of a live animal. Um, but the cells in that dish are simply in a, a different context than the cells in an intact brain. There's, there might be at a different developmental stage. There's a different, you know, soup of stuff floating around the brain compared to the Petri dish. And you can't assume that, that the one set of experiments will translate into the other context. Right. Right. And they frequently don't. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the other consideration that you brought up is, you know, different people doing experiments uh, are doing them, you know, in different brain regions, um, which are going to have different levels of receptor expression in things. Is there strong evidence in in pyramidal neurons in the cortex, um, neurons which do express high levels of 5-HD2A receptors, that in vivo psychedelics are directly inducing uh, plasticity in those neurons? So nobody has... Um... So there are studies where people have looked at neurons in vivo. Um, This is primarily the work of um, Alex Kwan. Uh, But we don't know if those, and and what he shows is that psychedelics enhance plasticity. uh, And it's due in vivo, at least to some extent, to to 5-HT2A receptors. But the problem is that the cells that he's looking at uh, probably do not express 5-HT2A receptors. Mm. Um, so he uses a thigh one reporter mouse. This is sort of a technical thing. Um, and uh, we have we have made a, a reporter mouse uh, for the 5-HT2A receptor. So we basically have tagged the receptor so that we can visualize it in in living mice. And what we find is that there's very little correspondence between thigh one expressing neurons and 5-HT2A neurons in the brain. The thigh one neurons are mainly layer six neurons uh, and 5-HT2A receptor expressing neurons are mainly layers four and five. So um, we actually don't know. We're, 
Mm. My lab is trying to get those studies up and running, but they're they're technically very challenging to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I see. So it sounds like basically people have done the experiment where they can look at, literally through a microscope, look at certain neurons within certain parts of the cerebral cortex. We know that certain neurons in, in some parts of the cerebral cortex have a lot of 5-HG2A receptors, but it's not all neurons. So they've done right. an experiment where they give the psychedelic, they, they're looking at certain neurons and, and they see plasticity. So they see new spines right. forming and things like this. But what you're saying is the neurons they're able to look at in those experiments aren't actually the ones that have 5-HG2A receptors. So it's some kind of indirect thing happening. Yeah. Yeah. Surprise, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just un- unlucky. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so psychedelics have neuroplastic effects. Um, we know that in certain contexts, these can depend directly on 5-HT2A. In other contexts, you know, it, it's a little bit more ambiguous and things like, uh, and it's just complicated. We haven't fully worked it out yet. Um, you know, on this question of whether or not the psychedelic effects the subjective effects that they induce can be dissociated from the neuroplastic effects. What, what, what do you think the the state of the art is there? Has that question been answered yet or is it still unknown? Well, certainly it's been answered uh, in vitro because um, I think David Olson's group has shown that a number of non-psychedelic drugs, including uh, lysuride uh, can induce plasticity in neurons in vitro. Um, and of course, lysuride is not, not a psychedelic drug, um, in humans. Uh, so there's, you know, pretty, pretty strong evidence that at, at least what you're measuring in, in cells and culture. Um, we also have reported a, um, we and others have reported, uh, data in mice with, um, non-psychedelic drugs. Uh, so John McCorby's group reported that bromo LSD, which is not psychedelic in humans, absolutely not, apparently has uh, antidepressant-like actions in mice. Uh, and they also showed that this uh, drug Ariadne, which is, I would say, less psychedelic. It's not, not entirely non-psychedelic, but is is a less potent psychedelic also has some antidepressant-like activity. And we recently uh, posted a paper on bioarchivix showing that lysuride directly has antidepressant activity in mice, antidepressant drug-like activity. Um, so there, you know, there, and then there, um, uh, our group published a paper in Nature showing a, you know, a non-psychedelic compound is ostensibly therapeutic and, and other groups have reported the same thing. So there's there's a lot of data in mice um, that uh, that drugs that interact with the 5-HT2A receptor activated uh, to some degree are not psychedelic, but they have um, you know therapeutic drug-like actions in mice. Whether this will ever translate to humans is sort of the big question. So we don't know. Um, there are hints, though, that that this is possible because both bromo LSD and lysuride, which are which are not psychedelic, as as well as Ariadne and in sort of anecdotal reports, have all uh, demonstrated potential therapeutic actions in humans. 
Um, so I think I think the possibility is there, but we don't really have the best compounds yet to test in humans to to test this hypothesis. Um, so a number of us are are trying to uh, test this hypothesis directly by basically making compounds that would be suitable for testing in humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and there's a, there's lots of considerations for here. So I'll just br- briefly mention some things for people before before we, I dive into some other questions for you. So ne- neuroplasticity is a pretty broad term. There's many different forms of plasticity and many different mechanisms um, involved. Um, so it's it's not just sort of one thing. Uh, different drugs, you know are going to interact with different things in the brain and, and they may or may not induce different forms of neuroplasticity. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about related to this general topic is, you know, we, we know that all kinds of drugs, psychoactive and non-psychoactive can have neuroplastic effects, SSRIs, you know, almost any, you know, addictive drug that you can think of. Um, but when, when we talk about the psychedelics and, and the effects that people have been seeing and studying in them in particular, um, one of the one of the ways that people have been trying to distinguish them from other drugs is in in talking about the the nature of the neuroplastic effects they induce. So one of the the new terms that's been introduced recently by uh, certain groups is psychoplastogen, and the idea there is apparently that it refers to drugs that can produce rapid and sustained effects on structural plasticity. So the ability of you know new spines and things to to sprout up or go away does that term distinguish psychedelics from other drugs or, or not? Uh, I don't, I don't really like the term, uh, that much. Um, if you think about the term psychoplasticity, what it would, what it would infer is any compound that's psychoactive, uh, induces plasticity, you know, plasticity induced by any psychoactive compound. And we know all psychoactive compounds induce plasticity. Um, or if they didn't, you would not be able to remember that you took a drug, basically. <laughs> so if you drink, if you if you have a enjoyable drinking experience, uh, that experience is is remembered and it it the re- the memory is occurs by plasticity. That's how we remember things. That's how that's how the brain works. Um, and uh, so I I I prefer the term just neuroplasticity. Um, I don't I don't think there's any any data yet that that psychedelic induced plasticity is different from that induced by other drugs. Um, uh, you know, we, we just have to see. Um, mm-hmm. I always thought it was sort of a marketing technique, basically. Well, yeah. In, in my if reading, of the- a, if you come up with a new term, then, you know, if it captures the imagination of people, then it's, it becomes mm-hmm. used. But yeah, uh, in, in my reading of the term as it's been used, it, it seemed like an attempt to distinguish things like classic psychedelics from other kinds of drugs by referring to their ability to induce rapid and sustained structural plasticity. But the thing that confused me about that is there's many other non-psychedelic drugs that we know can induce rapid and sustained plasticity, right? Yeah. Cocaine, cocaine for one amphetamine. So uh, it was shown by the 
uh, Rob Malenka's lab decades ago that a single dose of cocaine uh, induces long-lasting, uh, long-term potentiation, which is a, is a type of plasticity, um, which which can be remembered by the by the mouse for a year, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it, it's not you know it doesn't quite. <laughs> I know what they're trying to do, but it doesn't. I, I, I sort of object to the term. Um, I'll just say, from a philosophical perspective, um, that ultimately uh, it depends on how people in the sciences use the term. So, if people in in neuroscience use the term only to discuss psychedelics, then that will be the term, basically. Uh, and there, you know, there may be a, in, in the Oxford English dictionary there, you know, there may be some paragraph about a debate about the term, but if people use the term and it's used widely, then it's the term basically. Um, but I, I don't like to use the term basically because it, it implies something that we don't really know is true yet. It, It could be true, but. We don't have any data for it. And one of the things um, I'm hoping you can unpack for people a little bit is, so for, for non-scientists um, listening that, that don't have a background in this, you know, it's a little abstract when we talk about, you know, drug goes into the brain, it binds a receptor, and then plasticity happens. Right. What's happening in between? So a drug, let's, let's just take psilocybin or LSD as an example, a classic psychedelic, it gets into the brain. It binds to serotonin 2A receptors and other receptors. And then somewhere after that, plasticity happens. New connections sprout up and things like that. What's happening in between that, that connects those dots? So uh, we, my lab with uh, Peter Penzis investigated this in some detail now 14 years ago. Uh, and... What we found was that uh, synaptic uh, scaffolding proteins uh, and kinases that are protein kinases that are uh, have historically been involved in uh, new spine formation appear to be involved in in that process, and that it was due to the 5-HT2A receptor. Um, so there were. Um, synaptic uh, scaffolding proteins called MUP1, technically a PDZ binding domain protein, which we know interact with the receptor. Uh, And then uh, various protein kinases downstream of that that are activated, uh, ultimately leading to some cytoskeletal rearrangement. Um, And uh, in in our paper, which I urge people to, to read, but no one reads because I don't think anybody reads anything that's more than five years old. Um, we show fairly conclusively the involvement of specific kinases and other proteins in this uh, process. Um, that's that's for the initial phase of plasticity. So we were looking at, in our paper, what we found was that psychedelic drugs can induce uh, spine formation which within 30 minutes of exposure, which is very fast. Um, in terms of the maintenance of spines, it's likely that other pathways involving uh, uh, 
uh, BDNF and track B receptors are involved. So it's, it's sort of well known in neurosciences that uh, BDNF and track B, uh, that, that pathway is responsible for the maintenance of new spines and, and synaptic plasticity. And there's, uh, a fair amount of data now that uh, psychedelic drugs uh, can enhance the expression of BDNF uh, and um, that uh, spine formation is dependent on uh, track B receptors. Um, that That's very similar to uh, plasticity that's induced basically by any drug, including ketamine. So ketamine is another, you know, rapidly acting antidepressant drug it's it's pretty well accepted that um, activation of BDNF and track B is essential for the plasticity inducing effects and the antidepressant effects of ketamine, for instance. So it wouldn't be surprising if uh, if this system is also uh, essential for psychedelic drug actions. And does you know when plasticity is induced by a drug or an endogenous compound? Does that necessarily have to involve changes in gene expression, signals that go all the way to the nucleus and turn genes on or off? Uh, not necessarily. Um, so there, there is local uh, protein synthesis that occurs in the spine. Um, one of the people that just won the brain prize um, basically discovered this process. Um, so under, underneath the spines, it turns out that there is, um, there's messenger RNA and rough ER and, and so on. And there can be local, uh, protein synthesis that occurs. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to go, the signal doesn't necessarily have to go back to the nucleus and alter gene transcription for the neuron, at least, at least initially, you know, long-term, of course, um, there are going to be changes in uh, protein translation and transcription, um, but but how these changes ultimately are responsible for the plasticity that may may or may not occur with psychedelics is not known. And you know another concept I wanted to ask you about that's relevant to some recent findings is when we talk about neuroplasticity that's that's the actual uh like physical changes that happen per se so a new spine a new a new structure a new synapse forms there's also the concept of metaplasticity uh what is that I have no idea because <laughs> I don't study it I see um, so um so the recent paper um, from Gould Dolan's lab that looked right. at social reward learning um, was looking at and so, plasticity. So I just looked it up in Wikipedia, <laughs> and it refers to the plasticity of synaptic plasticity. <laughs> so yeah, I you know I think people would say it's it's the you know it's the extent to which. Uh, plasticity can happen or how easily, you know, a new synapse can form or something like that. One thing that I was hoping to ask you about related to that was, um, so when we talk about synapses forming, uh, the connection between two neurons, we talked a little bit about the intracellular side, some of the proteins and kinases that are involved 
in uh, synapse form or spine formation. Um, what about the extracellular space and sort of the, the physical structure of that? How how much relevance is there to uh, the the extracellular composition in terms of you know whether or not new synapses can form? Yeah, well, it's it's key, of course. When a when a synapse forms, it has to um, meet the adjacent neuron, basically. And to do that, it has to, um, you know, it's guided across by the extracellular matrix. Um, and uh, so extracellular matrix proteins are essential for all types of plasticity, ultimately, or involved in all types of plasticity. I see. So, so you know, not only does uh, the, the inside of the neuron need to ch- needs change, but it needs to be able to... I mean, essentially physically move across uh, a scaffolding, a physical substrate in order to to move around things. Right, right. And there's recognition by by basically the presynaptic membrane and the postsynaptic membrane. So there are adhesion proteins that, that cross the synapse. And uh, these were um, first discovered by Tom Sudoff. Uh, and he got the Nobel Prize for that uh, some years ago. Um, so, so basically, it's it's a fairly complicated, you know, as you can imagine, it's like everything else. It's a fairly complicated uh, situation, which is regulated at multiple levels. So, there's extracellular matrix, there are adhesion proteins, there are signals, diffusible signals that go both ways. So, there are lots and lots of processes that are involved. Uh, including, you know, extracellular matrix proteins. Um, another thing that's interesting, I think, uh, in this general field is, you know, you've got results on things like rapid antidepressant effects from different kinds of drugs that work in different ways. So something like psilocybin, that's a classic psychedelic, we th- it binds the 5-HD2A receptor and other receptors. Then you've got something like ketamine, which is a dissociative um, anesthetic, and it's operating at least in part through NMDA receptors. Um, mm-hmm. but it also has these rapid antidepressant effects. Mm-hmm. So, uh, how do you start to think about this? Where you kind of have the the same uh, endpoint being measured, the same effect, um, but it's coming from drugs that have uh, at least a, 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 that would appear to have very different mechanisms of action. Yeah, I think um, ultimately, if we focus on the glutamatergic neuron, so 5-HT2A receptors are on pyramidal neurons. These are glutamate-expressing neurons. Uh, and one of the one of the uh, peculiar things about ketamine, so ketamine is an NMDA receptor antagonist. Uh, and what it does at um, sort of sub-dissociative levels of administration is it preferentially interacts with NMDA receptors on GABA neurons. So GABA neurons are inhibitory, and it blocks the excitatory input to the GABA neurons. So it's basically blocking inhibition. And what that does is that that relieves a inhibitory break on pyramidal neuron firing and promotes increased firing of pyramidal neurons, basically. Okay? And psychedelics do the same thing. Uh, except they do it directly. Um, and we have recently found uh, 
using uh, a, we haven't published this, but I presented it at meetings, that NMDA receptors, uh, the receptors for ketamine, appear to be in close proximity to 5-HT2A receptors uh, in, in those neurons. So there, there could actually be a direct physical link. And it's previ- it was pre- previously shown by Rex Wang's lab in the 90s that uh, psychedelics alter NMDA currents. Um, so I think, I think we're getting sort of converging evidence that it's, it's basically a final common pathway mm-hmm. uh, related to uh, firing of pyramidal neurons. Uh, ketamine does it uh, sort of indirectly and psychedelics do it directly. I see. And that, that might, you know, it could be in part why psychedelics appar- apparently have a longer duration of action than ketamine, at least clinically. I see. So, so ultimately, you know, when we're thinking about effects in the brain, we're talking about changing patterns of activity of neurons. And there's more than one way to do that. If you want right. to, you know, increase the amount of excitation in the circuit, you can increase the activity coming from the excitatory neurons. You can also decrease level inhibition going on to them from the inhibitory interneurons. Right. Right. I see. Right. Yeah. You can do it directly or indirectly, basically. And, you know, and you, you, the data, the data that we have and others have uh, suggests that, uh, you know, ketamine does this indirectly and uh, classical psychedelics do it directly. Mm-hmm. And is it common for a drug to have dose-dependent effects like that, where, you know, at a low dose, it's interacting preferentially with, you know, one cell type, and then at a higher dose, it starts interacting with with others? Uh, It's not uncommon, yeah. Yeah. And how does that work? Do different cells have, like, receptors with different levels of affinity for the drug, or, or why does that happen? So I don't know why that is, but it's uh, it's a phenomenon that I think was initially described by Beta Mogadam maybe 15 or 20 years ago and has been, you know, recently replicated. Um, so it's, it's a, you know, you would probably have to ask Beta. She's sort of the world's expert on this, why it is that uh, low doses of ketamine particularly target interneurons and, you know, inhibitory interneurons and higher doses, uh, interact with uh, NMDA receptors on excitatory neurons. Um, so I, I don't know why that is, but it's something that's, you know, been described multiple times in the literature. So it's, it's a real phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, another, another drug worth talking about um, in a similar vein. So you've got something like a classic psychedelic, which we've been talking about where we're thinking about 5-HG2A receptors, ketamine, a NMDA receptor antagonist, and then you've got something like MDMA. So how does MDMA basically work? And do you think of MDMA as a psychedelic or what What type of drug is it slash, you know, how should people think about uh, classifying drugs in, in terms of their mechanisms? Yeah, so NMD or MDMA is you know, ordinarily you would put it in the bin of, of psychostimulant because it has amphetamine-like actions. So it causes the release of uh, dopamine and serotonin. Um, that's how it works. It does it by interacting with transporters for dopamine and serotonin. Um, so, and MDMA also has, I would say, low affinity for 5-HT2A receptors. 
It has a metabolite MDA, which has higher affinity for 5-HT2A receptors, but they're still sort of weak. Um, so they're, because MDMA primarily causes the release of serotonin and dopamine, um, you know, there's data in the literature that the drugs that block dopamine and serotonin receptors can block certain effects of MDMA. Um, so some effects of MDMA are blocked by 5-HT2A receptor antagonists, some are not. Um, I think 5-HT1A receptor antagonists may block some effects. And um, the locomotor activity of, of MDMA can be blocked by dopamine antagonists. Um, so it has sort of a complicated mechanism of action. Um, it's not entirely clear uh, how this leads to the potential therapeutic actions of MDMA. Uh, MDMA also interacts with a, a family of receptors called tracemine receptors, uh, which are found in the brain. And it's, you know, it's possible that interactions with tracemine receptors, psychedelics also interact with tracemine receptors to some extent. It's conceivable that, that actions at tracemine receptors are responsible for the therapeutic actions of these drugs, but we just, we just don't have any data on that. Um, so we, we consider, um, I, I sort of consider uh, MDMA as, as just a psychostimulant. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people that study MD- MDMA refer to it as a intactogen uh, or empathogen uh, because it, you know, increases one's empathic uh, processes. Um, but it's not it's not a psychedelic because, it, as far as I understand, it doesn't induce uh, hallucinations. <laughs> right? I mean, I haven't heard that. Yeah, I don't think anyone. Uh, I, I've never heard that. Yeah. So psychedelics induce hallucinations, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> As a minimum, um, an MDMA doesn't. So um, ordinarily, we would not classify it as a psychedelic. Um, again, I think it's sort of this this uh, branding. Uh, if if people can brand MDMA as a psychedelic, it makes it sound more sexy. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's in, definitely- the, in the past. So when in the past, by like five years ago, when no one was studying psychedelics, other than my lab and two other labs in the world, nobody, none of us considered MDMA a psychedelic. But now that there's this huge universe of people that are interested in these compounds they're sort of binning them all together yeah Um, and again it it you know if ultimately you know people decide that any drug that that causes you to feel strange as a psychedelic then that's that's what they'll be basically Mm -hmm. Um, i i sort of have been advocating a more uh a pharmacologic um, classification uh, of drug of the of these drugs, uh, basically because that's the way we in in pharmacology that's how we define drugs is mm-hmm. based on their mechanism of action. So, um, but again, it will 
we'll we'll have to wait for 10 years to see how the word psychedelic is actually being used yeah i mean i mean ultimately we're just you're describing a linguistic phenomenon which is not specific to this field by any means but right. it, it sort of seems like the word psychedelic in my view and of the read of the last few years of usage it's almost evolving just to mean something like rapid acting next generation psychiatric medicine or something yeah i don't I don't know if people that went to the psychedelic science conference would use that definition. I think, you know, my sense is those, the people that, that are sort of in quote unquote, the psychedelic community would consider ketamine, you know, ibogaine, salvia, um, classical psychedelics, MDMA, uh, dextromethorphan, et cetera, would consider all of these drugs psychedelic, quote unquote, psychedelic. Um, so they're sort of co-opting. So we used to have this term psychoactive mm -hmm. uh, to describe those, to describe those drugs. So I would, everybody would agree they're psychoactive. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 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 you know, ultimately will depend. It's, it's sort of like, um, say, 20 years ago, if you wanted to refer to somebody as as having a good um, a good sense of empathy, you would say they're empathic, right? Mm -hmm. And then about 10 years ago, people started using the term empathetic, uh, which was not the preferred term. But isn't it now is mm -hmm. basically if you go to the dictionary now empathetic, which was a um, unpreferred term, <laughs> is now the preferred term. Okay, and it may be as we go forward that instead of using the term psychoactive, we'll use the term psychedelic. Mm. And then, and then I would recommend that we 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 refer to drugs like LSD, mescaline, and psilocybin, DMT as classical psychedelics, <laughs> and the others as atypical psychedelics. Um, this is the approach that the uh, European uh, Commission on Drugs uh, has taken. So they're sort of the European um, equivalent to the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. So they have, they define classical psychedelics and then other psychedelics. Mm -hmm. okay. So classical psychedelics would be uh, 5-HT2A, like serotonergic psychedelics, like LSD, psilocybin, right. DMT. Yeah. And then you've got the other ones. So like salvia acts through a completely different receptor yeah. and so on and so forth. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Another interesting question here is um, related to the uh, duration of the subjective effects of these things. Something like Ibogaine lasts a very, very long time. LSD also lasts a long time, but not quite as long. But even within the classic serotonergic 5-HD2A receptor activating psychedelics like say um, psilocin, LSD, DMT, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of difference between them in terms of how long they last. And what is the, how does that actually work? Does it just have to do with how long they are sitting at the receptor? So to a great extent, it's it's due to what's called pharmacokinetics, basically how fast they're cleared from the body. So DMT is cleared very quickly. Um, it's degraded by monoamine oxidase. Uh, 
psilocin slower and LSDs hardly at all. Um, so that's that's a main driver. Um, another driver for LSD in particular uh, is that um, when it binds to the receptor, it binds in what's called a pseudo irreversible fashion. So once it's bound to the receptor, it doesn't come off for like eight hours. Um, and that's because a lid comes over the top of LSD and basically locks it into place. Um, we don't see that with other psychedelics. Um, it appears to be peculiar to uh, just LSD-like compounds, which have this long duration of action. So we we think it's it's pharmacokinetics as well as um, the fact that that it's when it's on the receptor, it doesn't come off. Drugs drug like DMT has fairly low affinity, so it's gonna it's gonna come on and off the receptor in the second within a few seconds, basically. So that um, as it's metabolized, it basically is completely eliminated. Um, and this is not the case for LSD. And so you've got these different durations of action. You've got, you know, you've got um, human observations where, you know, some of the clinical results with things like psilocybin show a correlation between the reported intensity of the subjective effects and and the actual uh, duration of of the therapeutic outcome um, that was also uh, the subject of um, that recent paper about critical periods and social reward learning, where you know they looked at various drugs, things like psilocybin and LSD, classic psychedelics, as well as things like ketamine and ibogaine and MDMA, and they found uh, this interesting relationship with respect to the social reward learning model they used, where basically mm-hmm. the the length of the subjective effects um, was proportional to the duration of time of the drugs being able to open this critical period for social re- reward learning. And you know this this relates to this question of of the efficacy of the potential therapeutic efficacy of of the subjective effects themselves. Um, what do you think about that recent result and and what would What's it? What's it going to look like when we have more definitive answer to this question of of the, rele- the therapeutic relevance of the subjective effects? Well, I would say that the the what they report is that the duration of action of the drug is correlated uh, with the duration of the effect on on social learning, um, and I would say that's unsurprising. Uh, if a drug has a longer duration of action, it's going to have a longer duration of action, basically. <laughs> so if it so this is that result was not particularly surprising to me. Uh, it was interesting. Uh, I you know, I think we really need this is a situation where we really need more human data. So we only have, we only really have human data uh, for a couple of well-controlled phase two trials for psilocybin, basically. Um, and uh, in the most recent, one of the most recent ones, uh, it appeared that the therapeutic effect may have tended to wane actually at the end of the study. Um, I think this was the one that was in the New England Journal of Medicine Uh psilocybin versus uh, S-ketamine. Um, so I think right now what we need are adequately powered uh, 
adequately controlled human trials to see really what the duration of action it really is. Um, and I, I would just, um, at this stage of the game, I would, uh, I would be agnostic because we just, we just don't have any data on that. Um, but I would say that the, the findings in the paper are not unsurprising, uh, that the, that the pharmacokinetics of the drug appear to be correlated with the duration of action, that, that sort of classic pharmacology dogma. <laughs> so another thing I wanted to ask you about related to recent results um, has to do with, um, you know, so we, we've talked about 5-HT2A receptors, serotonin 2A receptors with respect to the classic psychedelics. They're very important. They seem to be essential for the subjective effects. Um, they're like, they're likely also playing some role in the neuroplasticity, um, although uh, the in vivo evidence is more ambiguous there. But but as as you mentioned, um, all of these compounds, LSD, psilocin, DMT, um, basically all of these things bind to a bunch of different receptors in the brain, and each one has you know a different pattern of affinity for for a different set of receptors. One of the ones that you mentioned earlier was this thing called um, Trek B. And it's bound by BDNF. Can you give people a little bit more background on on what those things are, and uh, sort of a, a high level overview of of what they're famous for in terms of development and plasticity? Yeah, these are growth. What are called growth? They're in the growth factor receptor family. Um, so these were originally growth factor receptors were originally identified by Rita Levy Maltokini, um, and um, there was somebody else, but um, she got the Nobel Prize uh, for uh, basically discovering nerve growth factor and and the various receptors. And BDNF is just brain derived neurotrophic factor. It's it's you know it's it's one of dozens of growth factors, and then there are dozens of growth factor receptors, um, and many of them have been demonstrated to be very important for normal growth and maintenance of the brain and its connections. Um, track B uh, has, since I would say Ron Duman's work um, in the night, the late Ron Duman's work in the nineties has, has been a sort of achieved central uh, importance in, in the regulation of the effects of, of a number of drugs so um, that induce plasticity. So drugs like cocaine and morphine, um, which cause plasticity of a deleterious type. So they, the type of plasticity they induce is, is dependence. This is all, this is all dependent on track B. This is well-described uh, cocaine, amphetamines, um, morphine, basically they're, they're, their long-term effects are all mediated by track B. And there's um, there's data, uh, compelling data that the long-term effects of classical antidepressant drugs also ultimately are mediated by track B. Okay. So there's um, there's data going back a couple of decades that a final common pathway of the action of many drugs that induce long-term changes in the brain is due to activation of the track B receptor direct directly or indirectly. Okay. So it's, it's another one of these proteins that's, it's well known. 
Uh, if you go to PubMed, there are, you know, maybe 50 or 60,000 papers on track B and BDNF. <laughs> it's maybe 100,000 papers on BDNF, basically. So BDNF has been, and track B, they've been implicated in, in every sort of um, synaptic event almost in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as I said, there there's data now from a couple of groups that uh, at least that uh, track B and BDNF may be part of the final common pathway of psychedelic drug action. And there was a recent paper that I looked at, but I didn't, I didn't scrutinize it in, in too much detail, but it had to do with um, psychedelics binding to this track B receptor, which is what BDNF binds to. And apparently mm-hmm. they directly bind to it. Um, so was that known already? And was this paper, is this paper, contradicting the idea that the neuroplastic effects, at least some of them are coming through 5-HG2A receptors, or could it be both, or is one thing upstream of the other? So um, I would say it doesn't. So what it, what it shows is that uh, LSD and psilocin, which is the active uh, metabolite of psilocybin, can bind to the track B receptor with high affinity. Mm-hmm. And um, with the same affinity that they bind to serotonin receptors, and that they can potentiate the effects of BDNF on activating track B. Um, and then they show that uh, track B is essential for the uh, neuroplastic effects of psychedelics. So I would say the 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 part of the paper where they say track B is important for psychedelic action, I think most people would probably agree with that. I don't don't think that's a particularly um, unsurprising result. Um, the thing that's a little bit surprising is that they find that uh, that LSD binds with such high affinity to track B. It's it's like one nanomolar potency. That's that's very high affinity. Um, and uh, it's it's never been reported before. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever looked very closely. Uh, <laughs> there would have been would have been no reason to look. Um, so we're, you know we're waiting to see if if those if other people see the same thing, basically. Uh, so it's it's a pretty interesting result. It could be true, um, but we have to see. My lab is you know we're working very hard now to see if we can reproduce those findings, because obviously if they were true, then that would be another potential target uh, that we could uh, utilize for drug discovery purposes. Um, That being said, there are some downsides to directly uh, uh, hitting track B. Um, So there were uh, studies that have been done in the past where um, people have uh, tried to use BDNF as a therapeutic agent uh, for various neurodegenerative diseases. It basically didn't work, and there are a lot of bad side effects. Um, so we think that, um, you know, just act, just sort of willy-nilly activating track B in the brain is probably not a good thing long-term. Um, but since psychedelics are only taken occasionally, you know, if, if, it's, if this is true, it could be, you know, something really interesting. We just have to see. And is BDNF, is that something that gets sort of 
released widely across the brain, or is that something that operates in a very sort of specific synapse by synapse fashion? Yeah, so it's released, uh, so it'll have local effects, but it's typically only released from neurons that are, um, you know, that activate it, activate its release, basically. So it's it's not normally sort of activated everywhere in the brain. It's found in every neuron in the brain, basically. Um, so typically there, you know, there's some pathway specificity about the effects of BDNF. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we think about, when we think about drugs like this or, or really any drug, you know, whether it's a psychedelic or an SSRI, anything that we want to use to treat, uh, some, you know, treat a psychiatric condition, you know, presumably when someone has, you know, depression or PTSD or whatever, there are certain synapses in the brain, certain circuits that you want to be more plastic, um, and, you know, create new connect connections or create, take away some connections. And there's presumably many that you actually don't want to change. Um, but when we administer drugs to people, you know, the drug goes through the bloodstream and it sort of gets in the brain, it basically goes everywhere. And so how do you, you know, as someone who's uh, sort of a, a, a molecular mechanistic laboratory scientist, but also has training in psychiatry, how do you start to think about this, you know, this, this issue of, you know, we want to have very, very targeted uh, changes that we induce in the brain to help fix it. Um, and yet our drugs, you know, are basically go everywhere. Yeah. Well, uh, psychedelics go everywhere, but their receptors are not everywhere. Mm. Um, and, uh, so one way of addressing sort of the question is to make psychedelic drugs that only hit the five HT two a receptor and, and see, see if and so see if be even, even more selective. Yeah. Yeah. So we have those compounds mm-hmm. now. Um, and they are therapeutic, at least in mice. Um, so that's one way. Um, another sort of, uh, futuristic way is to use this technology that uh, my lab invented called chemogenetics. And, uh, what chemogenetics allows us to do is to target distinct neuronal populations and turn them on and turn them off with a pill, basically. Hmm. Um, somewhat akin to optogenetics accepted you don't you don't have to put an optical fiber in somebody's brain mm-hmm. and turn it on and i think so most listeners on. probably haven't heard of chemogenetics or dreads or, or some of this cool technology that you invented can can you walk people through uh, how that works at a high level yeah i just have i have five minutes left here so okay yeah we'll just end it there yeah so chemogenetics basically use uh receptors like serotonin receptors um that have been engineered so that they are activated only by a drug, which is uh, inert. Um, And so uh, these can be put into any neuron in the brain. uh, And then uh, they can, uh, by administering of a, of an inert drug, we can turn the neurons on and turn them off basically in a, in a highly, highly uh, robust fashion. And, um, I would say in the neurosciences, the technology is used sort of ubiquitously. So if you go, if you go to the neuroscience meeting, there will be hun- literally hundreds and hundreds of posters using this technology. Um, and uh, and it's also it's 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 now been shown in multiple um, papers to be very effective in non-human primates. Uh, unlike other technologies like optogenetics, which are very challenging when you get to be your bigger brains. Um, 
So we think that ultimately this, uh, you know, another another approach would be focused. Um, there are focused ultrasound procedures now uh, to, that are being developed to to uh, target particular circuits in the brain. And there's uh, focused transmagnetic cranial stimulation as well. That that um, so these are non non invasive technologies to modulate the activity of particular neurons. Um, so that that's the approach we're taking is to make drugs that are way more selective for those for those neurons, um, and then also to develop technologies that where we can once we find the neurons we want to modulate we can turn them on and turn them off at will. Um, I see. So one strategy is uh, tweaking drugs so they're binding fewer types of receptors and they have more right. specific only one. activity. In this case, only one, right? Only the five HT two A, which is only found in certain neurons in the brain. Right. right. What's What's the name of that drug? Uh, ZX something something something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They all have code names. We have a yeah. ton of them basically now, um, and they all seem to work just fine in, in mice. So. Um, at least in mice, it appears to be the 5-HT2A receptor. We're pretty clear about that now. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Professor Brian Roth, I know that you got to go. Uh, you got stuff to do, but thank you for joining me again. Uh, yep. This was fascinating, and uh, have a good day. Bye.